You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Thank you, worship team. You're all free to go to Kids Church, all the kids, and it's Valentine's Day, so they have a great party coming up. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about going on a date with my wife tonight for Valentine's Day as well. I hope everyone's having a great Valentine's weekend. But today's message is not going to be about St. Valentine, and it's not going to be about romantic love at all. Uh, We're going to talk about love, but not just love, okay? We're going to talk about love and. Love and heaven, love and hell, the love that we derive from obedience to God's word, the love of the Father, and even the love that we see coming full circle in the book of Revelation in the form of judgment and restoration. You heard me right there. Judgment and restoration from love. There is a time for boxes of chocolates. There's a time for a sappy drama and a rom-com, if you can still find a half-decent one. But this morning on the Lord's Day, it's where we worship Christ. It's where we hear his revelation to us about love and all of these different things. So before we get into our text this morning, which is Malachi chapter 4, I want to ask you to, uh, to just look back into chapter 3 for a minute with me. As I set this text up, I'm going to reread part of our passage from last Sunday. And we're going to see our first type of person in this world. So you could call this a review, but this really helps us to see what's coming in chapter 4. So verses 13 through 15, we have... Uh, the wicked response to God, it's an accusatory spirit of entitlement that elevates oneself over God and expects to be rewarded for obedience, which is really not true obedience. It's just a facade of obedience. But let's look at this type of person. This is the first type of person. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And now in verses 16 through 18, we're going to see the contrast of the heart in the second type of person. So keep going. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So heading into this chapter 4, there's a clear distinction between those who love God and those who do not follow God, right? There's a big difference here between the righteous and the wicked. One, deep down, is caustic and resistant when it comes to putting themselves under the sovereignty of God. The other has a heart of reverence and fear for the Lord. Those are the two types of people... There's plenty of gray in this world, but when it comes to the great day of the Lord, it's completely black and white. 
completely black and white. Now, the last thing before we jump in, verse 17 makes it super clear that the righteous are being spared from something. You see that, right, in verse 17? That something is going to be highlighted in chapter 4, which is where we're going. But before we get there, let's highlight one last time this element of God's sovereign grace. Look at what verse 17 has to say about these people who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. He says, they shall be mine. I shall make them my treasured possession. Some of us here today have the old single on Valentine's Day blues. Okay, and you, and you may be dating, you may be married, and you still, you still feel that, even, even on a Tuesday. You feel like, I'm just not loved. Anybody ever feel that? Feel that way? I remember what it was like to want to love somebody, and it seems like no one romantically loves me. And, and here it is on Valentine's Day, all these other people are out there having a great time, posting pictures of all the fun a sad love song in E minor, but here's what God says about you, okay? Remind yourself of this on those melancholy nights. You are loved by God. You are his treasured possession. If you have confessed your sin and repented of living your life your way, apart from God, and you have believed in faith that Jesus came to this earth to shed his blood for your sin, he died, he rose again, then you have a relationship with the Lord, and you are his, and he knows you. You may think from time to time, I'm not worthy. I, I'm such a mess. Well, here's the way God looks at his children. You are my treasured possession. They shall be mine. So is this a my valentine kind of verse? I would say not really. It's a little bit of a stretch to go there. God isn't a cheap Valentine guard, you know, that smells good for a little while until the perfume wears off. That's not it. We don't want to miss that. But he really does love you, okay? He really does love you. A lot of people look at God and their relationship to Christianity as like a sappy Valentine's card, but he's infinitely more than that. We often put ourselves down. God looks at you like a treasured possession. He sent his only begotten son to save your soul, to adopt you, to claim you as his own child. All this is possible because Jesus paid the price for our personal sin. And our personal sin is what separates us from God. He has a solution to that. So you're either one of two people today. Either you are a person who says, you know what, I don't know the Lord and I don't need to know the Lord. I'm good on my own. I'm fine. I have other people in my life that love me. And then you have chapter 4 coming. Or you're the type of person who says, I fear the Lord. I esteem his name. And I mess up all the time. But he still loves me. You're the one of two people and every one of us has to prepare themselves for the day of the Lord. Some of us are prepared some of us think we're prepared, but we're really not. Some of us haven't even thought about it. And if that's you, I'm really glad you're here today. Because you are going to hear some very, very good news. 
Whether you're ready or not, you're either righteous through the blood of Jesus or in God's eyes, you are wicked because you have not bowed your knee to your creator, your Lord and Savior. It's that black and white. This is a black and white passage for Valentine's today with two points for two types of people. So without any further ado, the curtain has been called. Let's read chapter 4. For behold, the day of the, the before behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We have a lot to get into in this passage today, all right? A lot, a lot here. The first point today, though, is to prepare for the day of judgment. Prepare for the day of judgment. There should be no surprises there, right? You see where I get these points? <laughs> for behold, the day is coming. In this book we have heard, in this entire prophecy of Malachi, we have heard a lot of questions, a lot of accusations, all these arguments. And it ends with this. God's final word for 400 years before the New Testament revelation and this is where things can get a little confusing. If you're confused right now, I understand. Don't worry. We're going to work through this. Uh, this is a prophecy that still hasn't happened yet. Okay? You would think maybe that the next prophecy before Jesus coming would be about Jesus coming as a baby. It's not. All right? It's about Jesus coming the second time around when he doesn't come as a baby. He comes as a ruler ready to judge sinners. All right? This prophecy is about the end of the history of the world as we know it, all right? And, and I mean, before we even get into this today, I want to just set the tone right now. I heard, I saw a funny meme this week. Um, I'll just throw this out here for Jevity's sake. Uh, I had Michael Scott, a picture of Michael Scott and, you know, Christians and the mark of the beast on one slide. And then like a, a face only Michael Scott could make. And it said, I may not be superstitious, but I'm a little stitious, Okay. If you know Jesus, you should be a little stitious. There's some things here that we're going to talk about today that we don't normally talk about that are a little intimidating. We don't need to be intimidated by them. There's some good news with all of this. So we're living in the middle of a culture and a world that has quarrels and objections with God. We feel that. But in the end, he has the final say. Most normal people don't like hearing about fire and brimstone. The wrath of God is, is a very unpopular subject. So much so that churches often don't even talk about it. And when churches don't talk about it, the people who go to church don't really fully understand it. And when they're out in the real world and they get challenged with it, they, they don't know what to do, right? And they release their faith. 
eventually, we all have to understand that we're going to be faced with challenges with our faith. And you have to have the full picture of God to be able to answer objections about God, right? Uh, if you only have half the picture, you don't know the full God. And in Malachi 4, we have a piece of God that doesn't quite compute on first glance with the loving Jesus that we hear about in the New Testament. Well, I'm here to tell you today that if we don't believe in the full God, we don't know God. All right? So I can't just give you the nice, patient half of God the Father and the peaceful, nice half of Jesus and pretend that those two halves equal a whole. Because they don't. The full picture of the love of the Father and the justice of God are just as important as the balance of who Jesus is when he came into this world in the Gospels and who he comes into this world as in the book of Revelation. We're not talking about a different person. We're talking about the same person. And if it sounds foreign to you to hear about the wrath of God and judgment and hell and Jesus coming with a rod of iron, if that's like, what, where is that? Well, it's in the Bible. And it's my job to humbly break it to you that you haven't given, been given the full picture if you don't know this other side of God. If Christianity sounds light and quaint and like a fairy tale to you, maybe you're just stuck in the kids' section and you haven't read the whole book, right? There's more to it. You have to read the full counsel of God's word, and you can't skip the difficult parts. The middle of the Bible, all these prophecies, which we've been in, one of them, the book of Malachi, these things are so important. You can't skip the middle of a book and then think the ending of the book is too confusing, so you skip the last chapter, and then judge the book based on someone else's cliff note summary of the book. We can't do that. You need to read the Bible for yourself and get the full story. This is why books like Malachi are so important. One of the biggest themes of the Old Testament prophets is the coming day of the Lord, which hasn't happened yet. And we're getting a description of it right here. It's going to be great for some, for those who fear his name, for those who esteem him. The son of righteousness will appear with healing in his wings. And, and for people who know Jesus, they are going to be rising up and leaping out like calves out of a stall. You know, that might not be the, the, the go-to analogy we would use in the 21st century America. Uh, maybe something like you'll leap up to your feet like a, like a sports fan rejoicing that your team won the championship. But really, this is saying there's going to be healing for those who know God in the new earth for eternity. You're not going to have the ailments that you have anymore. Cancer is gone. Sickness, sorrow... Loss of, loss of taste, shortness of breath. None of that is going to exist. There is healing in his wings. That is very good news. But let's talk for a minute about verse 3 because this gets intense really fast. Look at verse 3 again. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You know, there's a lot to unpack here, but remember who the immediate audience is. We've been going over this all series. This was written to the comfortable believers of God who had lost their passion for God. Uh, at the same time, they had a very strong Persian influence, and the world around them was completely hostile to God, but they still 
were taking for granted everything God the Father had done for them. And it was just ho-hum faith. And this is intense language for our palates, is it not? Sounds a little intense, right? Like we're a kid getting thrown into the middle of a UFC fight in comparison. Um, this is hardcore history that we don't fully understand. We have in our, in our civilized society, we divulge in depravity in other different ways. But we can't kid ourselves into thinking that this is too violent for religion. You know, if you think that, I just have to ask again, what kind of religion are you talking about? Are you talking about a sterilized, granny-teaching Sunday school religion or the truth of the Bible? If you read the Bible, you would know that not everything in it is appropriate for kids, right? This is why we have Doxa Kids Church. We don't have the kids in the service every single week. Sometimes there's things that are really heavy, really intense, that aren't appropriate, and they're not family-friendly. That's in the Bible, right? And when you preach to the Bible like we do, we're going to come across things like this. Our, our service is geared towards believers. It's a worship service for Jesus Christ, and we welcome all guests into it, and we're so thankful that, that you're here and that you're observing us worshiping Christ. We can talk a lot more about that. I won't get off track. But passages like this show the consequences and the stakes of rebelling against the holy God. That's what we see here. Faith is not a light, trivial thing. And if you're looking for a sappy, feel-good religion, you're not going to find that in God's word. You have to stop looking for that. You don't need moralistic, therapeutic deism, a.k.a. casual Christianity with a nice side of fluff. You don't need that, and that's not in the Bible. You need salvation from hell, and you need a loving Savior who gives you a new heart. That's what we all need. So when you hear people saying things like, I just can't believe that a loving God would send people to hell. The God that I know would never do that. Ever hear that one? The truth that you have to graciously reveal to them and, and tenderly point out is that God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. God sent Jesus to die for their sin. He desires that every man and woman be saved, but he doesn't force you to comply. He doesn't force you. Sin separates you from God, and God did everything possible for your relationship with him to be restored. But if you refuse Jesus, or even just say, no thanks, I'm going to live it up and enjoy this life, in effect, think about that. Jesus shed his blood for your sin. He sacrificed everything to restore a relationship. And if you're just like, nah, no thanks. I'm good over here. I'm going to enjoy these, these awesome things that you created. I'm going to use the talent you gave me, and I'm going to go have fun with it. I'm going to use it to build myself up. That's spitting in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, it is. And that's why in the book of John, chapter 3, we see that those who do not believe are condemned already. You are separated from God if you're, if you're living apart from God. Sin separates you from a holy God. You need restoration. If you don't follow his way, eventually he lets you go your own way, and it leads to a place where God is not, like, 
the lake of fire, separation from God in hell. And this is how C.S. Lewis taught this truth in his book, The Great Divorce. He said it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And that's the way it works. So do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your sin, given your life to Jesus? Look again at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. I love the comparison of Jesus Christ right here to the Son. This isn't S-O-N. This is S-U-N. Anybody miss the sunshine right now? In February, yeah? We're in the doldrums. This is like the, of, of any period of life, this is like the grind, right? There's no sunshine. It's raining constantly. We're all feeling that. We need the sun, um, and I love a cozy, rainy day just as much as anyone, but I like, you know, I like winter, spring, summer, fall. I like variety, right? Let's get a little variety out there. It'd be great. But with the sunlight, we get what we need. There's a, there's a million things that are good for our bodies and our souls when we're getting sunlight. And just think about the way Malachi paints this picture of Jesus Christ. It's with this beautiful imagery, the sun of righteous, righteousness. Sunshine brings healing, warmth, vitality to our souls. But right here in Malachi, we're not just talking about the inanimate object. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. And the word here, uh, wings, may sound a little out of place. You know, the sun, okay, it rises in the east. It sets in the west every day. It's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. Just as the sun rises, Jesus, the sun of righteousness rose from death to life. We too one day shall rise to be with Jesus. But what is this word wings doing here? Uh, it's the Hebrew word kenef. It occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to a number of different things actually. In Genesis 1.21, kenef, wings, it's talking about the winged creatures that, that soar around the earth. In Isaiah 6.2, the word kenef describes the wings of the seraphim, the angelic creatures. It's also translated in 1 Samuel as garment. King Saul approached Samuel and grabbed the corner of the hem of his tunic. That's the kenef. Malachi is saying that the Messiah, the Son of Righteousness, will appear with healing in his wings, the kenef. So I'm not here to be a Hebrew scholar, but I mean, this could convey the idea of sunshine, like the edges of that, maybe the, edge, the hem of a garment. But his arrival will be associated with healing and restoring of his people. This is why the New Testament, when the sick woman reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she believed she could be healed. You can trace that all the way back right here to Malachi 4. But the healing that Malachi refers to in this passage is not just physical healing. It is a spiritual restoration from sin, sin that separates us from God. And he's looking to eternity when all those who know Jesus Christ will have complete healing. We will not be suffering. We will not be crying. We will not be facing the effects of this sin-cursed world at all. Is that getting you excited out there? I hope your heart is beating a little faster just thinking about the future that we have 
with our healing Savior. He can heal a broken heart. That's what he does. I would say, it, and go with me on this, it, it's enough to make us walk out of here jumping and leaping like a calf out of a stall, right? That's, that's what we have here. But here's why this matters for us right now. For every believer in this room, we can get so preoccupied with the present that we, that we completely forget eternity. Have you ever gotten so preoccupied? Maybe, maybe it was this week with all of the stuff going on in your life, in the present, all the noise, all the questions, all the unknowns, all the bad things that people did because we live in a sin-cursed world can suffocate us and we can get so preoccupied with the present that we forget the eternal. If you follow the news right now, it is nasty out there. Cancel culture is raging. And it doesn't really matter what you believe unless you were on, here's the truth, unless you were on the extreme far left. We're talking people that are distorting the truth of Scripture. They have a different God in their life than the God of the Bible. The extreme position over here. Or unless you are a Christian who believes the truth of God's word and you believe what God reveals is ultimate authority and you can stand confidently in that. If you're anywhere in between, you're living in fear right now. Because you could say the wrong thing and you could have somebody get offended at you and, and you could be in trouble. Really, anybody, and it doesn't even matter if you voted for the person who's on the right side and you think, hey, I'm good because, because of that. Like, you're quickly finding out and people are quickly finding out that we have a suppression of, of free thought right now that's just crazy, right? Look back a year ago, like February 2020. A lot has changed since then. You have to realize that we can't let this present darkness hinder our light. In our lifetimes, there's never been a more crucial time to stand for truth. You have to be over here and say, you know what? God's word reveals truth about who he is, which reveals truth about how he looks at me, and that's my identity. This is, this is grounding. This is, this is secure, solid rock ground right over here. And I can boldly share the truth. I don't have to be afraid of it. The only other person who, who feels that way is the person who's on the extreme other end. And everyone else in between is running scared. In John 1, we're told that Jesus is the light of men. In Revelation 21, Jesus Christ will be the light of glory. In the new earth, the sun will be replaced by the eminence of Jesus Christ. You want to hear that good news in its entirety? I think, I think just saying it isn't good enough right now. Um, would you turn with me to Revelation 21? Let's just read that. I'd like to read that in its entirety for you. Revelation 21. I love hearing people turn their pages of the Bible. That's awesome. Uh, let's pick up reading in verse 22, though. Revelation 21, last book of the Bible, all the way towards the end, second to last chapter. And I saw no temple... In the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So prepare for the day of judgment. Turn to Christ and shine his light. Sin won't continue forever as we know it right now. Life as we know it will come to an end. Eternity comes for every single one of us. And we have a limited brief, brief vapor of time right now here on earth. We don't have time to waste. Jesus is coming soon. And if you know Jesus Christ, there's healing in his wings. He came for you. Knock at the door and it will be opened unto you. Malachi is prophesying the message of God that is everything in human history that has rejected the creator is like a wood pile being stacked up and it will burn away. It's a sobering metaphor of humanity apart from God. So I've got to be real here. If you are rebelling against God, the inconvenient truth is you're not getting away with anything. You're like wood getting stacked up for a fire. And God has a very long wick, but there is a day when his patience will come to an end. And I say this out of love. You know, it's not loving to tone this down to make it more palatable. I know this is offensive right now. The gospel at this point is offensive. You are a sinner. All is not right with you. You need salvation. But the good news is that God loves you and he wants to restore you. And he sent his son Jesus. So you must prepare for the day of judgment. You either need to repent of your sin and find freedom and salvation and everlasting hope, true joy and peace, true joy and peace in a relationship with him. And if you already have that, you need to keep your heart and your head up. And, and you need to dismiss the lies and you need to live in your true identity. You are a treasured possession who has a calling and a mission. Second point today is found in verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, anticipate the day of restoration. So let's read through this again. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. This is a great verse, um, but remember the immediate context here. These are the final thoughts of the Old Testament, and God is saying, don't forget my word. Don't forget it. You're going to need it. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and he wrote a couple psalms. But this is just as practical for us today as it was for them back then. Part of anticipating Christ's coming is feeding yourself with truth. You have to do that. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and we will suffocate from the lies and the deceptions of the world, the flesh, and the devil if we don't constantly ground ourselves in the objective truth of God's word. This book that is infallible. This book that is not written by man, that is God's revelation to us. Now, verse 5, uh, well, before I even get into verse 5, I was talking with one of my sons this week, and he, he had messed up, and he was feeling terrible about himself. And, and he's an emotional kid, and, and he's just crying, and he thinks he's, He's terrible, and I had to go to Scripture and say, look, 
you can't let your feelings and emotions define who you are. You have to align your feelings and your emotions. These are good things that God has given you, but you have to align your feelings and your emotions with the truth of what God says about you in his word. This is who God is. This is what he says about you, right? If you know Jesus, you're his treasured possession. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. Align your feelings and emotions with the truth of God's word. Now, verse 5 is the kind of verse that if you want to know your pastor, me personally, like I geek out over verses like this. I just love this stuff, all right? Um, there's a side of me that loves to explore mysteries, and I love to connect the dots. That's why I like Christopher Nolan movies. I like, I like that kind of stuff that makes you think, all right? The Bible is the gold standard when it comes to connecting dots, foreshadowing, and, and something that means something right over here for one person in one period of time has another meaning that we, we discover there's even more to it later on in the new revelation of the new covenant, um, the New Testament. But read with, this, read, read with me in this verse, and then I will restrain myself from talking about it for an hour. But let's see where we're going, all right? Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there you go. There's the end of the Old Testament. Anyone out there scratching their head on this one? I see a couple of people literally scratching their head. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so understand this. You have to know Scripture, and you have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. All right? That's what we have to do. In the immediate context in Malachi's day, the people would take this as, all right, before the day of the Lord, Elijah is coming back. That's what God's people were thinking. Uh, one of the most... So, well, yeah, who is Elijah, though? Let, let's go there first. Um, we're going to do a little investigative journalism on Elijah for a second. Elijah was a prophet. We'll step away from Malachi here. Elijah was a prophet who brought revival in his time with God's people. He did amazing, bold acts for God. God used him to perform miracles. We probably should do a series on Elijah someday. Uh, but he stood up to the prophets of Baal. He actually stopped rain from happening because he prayed to God and he, he stopped it from raining. And then as the prophets of Baal were trying to make it rain, he came in and he prayed to God and God sent rain from heaven to consume this massive fire. All right, at one point, Elijah ran for his life because Queen Jezebel wanted him dead. And he thought, like, I'm the only, I'm the only follower of God. I'm, woe is me. I'm the only one. God provided for him. He has an amazing life. But one of the most amazing things, if not the most amazing thing about Elijah, probably is the most amazing thing, even though we did a lot of amazing things, he never died, okay? If you read the, if you read the prophets, Elijah was taken away by the Lord. And uh, when, when John the Baptist comes, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when he comes onto the scene, people asked him, if he was Elijah, because they were reading passages like this in Malachi, right? They, they knew the word of God, and, and they, they wanted to know, John the Baptist, are you Elijah? In a partial sense, John the Baptist was like Elijah because he was a forerunner of Christ, preparing hearts for Jesus Christ the Messiah. 
But when John was asked directly, are you Elijah? He said, no, no, I'm not Elijah. They were different men with the same Holy Spirit. Jesus gave clarity on this when he explained to his disciples that John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah. There was a connection there. And I told you we don't have an hour to talk about this right now. Um, This would be something to talk about over coffee sometime, for real. But John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Two different guys, Holy Spirit working through them similarly. But then you have this wrinkle in Luke 9.30. You see here in Malachi 4, he talked about Moses and he talked about Elijah. In Luke 9.30, guess who shows up in the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus Christ is showing the disciples that he is God. Who shows up? Moses and Elijah show up again in Luke 9.30. When Jesus was challenged about the resurrection by the, of his day, the, the religious woke crowd, these would be the intellectuals who did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. The Sadducees. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? How is Elijah still alive then in the fact that Elijah will be returning? Jesus pointed out the fact that Elijah is still alive and that he will be coming back. Then in Revelation 11, during the tribulation period, verses 3 through 14, we actually do see Elijah come back to earth. And if this just sounds crazy for you today, I warned you we were going to get stitious today, all right? I warned you about this. I love God's word. I believe it's true. It, it is, all right? If you, if, you, if you read the Old Testament, you see all the prophecies that come true in the New Testament, and then you see things like this. Well, this hasn't happened yet. This sounds crazy. It's going to happen, all right? Revelation 11, a lot of people, you know, they get nervous about Revelation. And uh, is it challenging? Yes. It's very challenging to understand. But I, I think our enemy wants us to minimize this book and shelve it because he doesn't want us to get what it actually reveals. During the tribulation period, and I believe this is, this is after the church is raptured away. That's, that's my my take on it, and I know different people, good men and women of God, have different views on how to interpret this book. That's not something to debate. It's something to sharpen each other over and, and actually discover and, and study. But during the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, it's also called, is when God is restoring his chosen people, Israel. And during that time, he sends two witnesses. Uh, well, let's just go there. Why not? Like uh, Revelation 11. Revelation 11, verses 3 through 14. You'll, it'll be more powerful for you to read it than for me to try to summarize it for you. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, then fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Hint. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they desire. Another hint. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them 
and conquer them and kill them. So Elijah is going to die eventually. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people, peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. I know I just opened up like a hundred more questions. I, know, I realize that. The earth is in chaos right now. This is the end of the world as we know it. Tribulation. Period. But before the great day of the Lord, Elijah does come back before God gives utter destruction. And I know we can, get fat, we can get nervous about this. Does the Bible really say this? Again, I know the thoughts are, ooh, this sounds a little out there. Of course it's out there, right? Of course it is. I mean, I believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And I believe that when he died, he rose again. And I believe that he's coming back again riding a white horse, all right? If you don't know Jesus, that sounds completely insane. Let's just be real about it. it. It sounds completely insane. But we know it's true. Primarily because he's changed our heart. He's given us a new life, a new reason to live, a new, a new, a new, a new way to breathe and to think and to process truth. All of this is real. So we don't need to be afraid of it just because it sounds a little crazy. The world is a crazy place. And it will end in a crazy way. But God is in sovereign control over it all. I told you we could talk about this for an hour, so we better keep going. Um, before Jesus comes the second time, before the final day of, the, of judgment, the day of the Lord, Elijah will come. They will kill him. The world will party over his dead body on the street. God will raise him to life. He will move mountains to show his power, to show his authority. But there's something else here that Revelation doesn't say that actually Malachi says. Connecting all the dots, right? Interpret scripture with scripture. There's another piece of this here. Elijah and his words will turn the heart of fathers to their children and will turn the hearts of children to their fathers. That sounds amazing to me. Just, just let that resonate for a minute. We live in a world where there's a lot of fathers. Yeah, they have a minimal version of love. Like, yeah, they care. I mean, it's God-given. But they're not sacrificing for their children like God, our Heavenly Father, sacrificed his own son for us. The heart of the Father is so amazing in Scripture. We talked about this at the, the men's breakfast yesterday. 
There's not a lot of men who have that same heart of God the Father, even for their own children. And because of that, there's not a lot of children who have, have a heart for their father. Now, I'm not saying people don't love their kids. Of course not. We're talking about another degree here of love. And when Elijah comes and he preaches and he prophesies before Jesus comes the second time for the final day of the Lord, when Elijah comes, God is bringing things full circle. He's actually, before he utterly destroys the world, he is going to restore his relationship with his chosen people of Israel. That's an awesome thing to see. That's the heart of our God the Father. He's going to do something with these cold, callous people before it all ends. Next week, I think I'm going to do just a little standalone sermon on Revelation. You know, I, I, think we're, I think this calls for that. We have a couple more weeks before I, I, I'm going to take a break. Ben's going to preach for us at the end of the month, and I'm going to preach one sermon in Revelation. Then in March, we're going to start our next series in 2 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 1 through 7, Afflicted with Affection. But uh, I believe in the book of Revelation, and of course there's a lot of imagery. Of course, a lot of good, solid men and women have different views on how to interpret it, but it's not something we should be dividing over. If you disagree with something I said because you look at Revelation a different way, that's fine. We can have another conversation about it. But here's what you can't miss. You should be anticipating the day of restoration. If you're, the way you look at Revelation doesn't cause you to hunger and thirst after Jesus Christ coming back, if you're not ready for Jesus Christ to return and you're not looking for him, you're reading Revelation wrong. I can confidently say that, right? Can we all agree on that one? The application that we cannot miss from this entire thing is to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. We can get confused, understandably so, but don't misunderstand that Jesus loves you. He died for you. He came to this earth as a baby to be a sacrifice for sin the first time. The second time, he's coming to judge the wicked people who persecute us and who do evil in the sight of God. He is, good, he is, he is, he is loving and part of his love is that he is just. You can't separate the two. And there's not going to be utter and complete destruction of every living soul in the tribulation because God is going to have a final rescue before he creates a new heaven and a new earth. I personally believe the church is off the scene during Revelation 11, and I'm thankful for that. But I'm not about debating it. Just study it for yourself. The point is to anticipate the day of restoration. Worship team, you can come up here. In the last days, we're also told, whenever this happens, we're told that in the last days that there will be a great turning away. And as we get closer to the end of the world as we know it, that means that many people in the church will turn away from the truth. I don't like the sounds of that. Like, that breaks my heart to think about that. But just like in Malachi's day, the people of God, there were many of them who didn't really know God. And this book has revealed that. 
Even today, there are people in the church that would call themselves a Christian and put that label over themselves. They don't believe this when push comes to shove. And they will turn away. Prepare yourself for that. People like the Jesus who treasures them and makes them feel warm, but they're not crazy about this end time stuff. It grieves me to say this, but I think the turning away is starting, I think it's starting to happen now. I think we're starting to see the beginning of that. But there's nothing to fear if you know Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to prepare yourself for the coming day of the Lord. And you can take care of that today. We have very good news for you there. But if you know Jesus Christ, there is nothing to fear. If you don't know Jesus, repent of your sin, turn to him. His arms are open wide. He will give you a new heart. And if you do believe in Jesus Christ, please wake up, right? We don't have enough time for you to live a casual, comfortable life and enjoy the blessings of God without being on mission for God. We are quickly approaching a time where if you're casual and, and just lighthearted about all this and you're not standing over here where you believe the Bible and truth, you're going to get chewed up and spit out in the world that we live in. So anticipate Christ. He's our living hope. He's returning. Our hope is not in man. It's not in political figures. It's not even in a church that's filled with people who make mistakes. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Anticipate his return. Don't live for yourself. Live for Jesus Christ. Make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call out the sinner. Call back the saint. That's what we're supposed to be doing. In the end, it's very black and white. You either love God or you're an enemy of God. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. I don't want anyone in this room to face the judgment of God. I want you to respond right now to his conviction. Allow what the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now to bring you to your knees and you can bow before your creator and your sovereign king, your Lord, who loves you, who wants to restore the relationship with you. Are you ready to shout of his fame? Stand up with me. My plea is that you accept Christ. And that if you've accepted Christ, embrace your calling by standing for truth and pleading with those who don't know Jesus. Let's worship him.
for the truth a little bit here today, all right? I also know that some of us in this room don't know Jesus. I get that. And you're hearing all this, and you're like, wow, do I have to believe all of that right now? My answer for you is you actually don't have to know, believe all of this right now, okay? You know why? Because most of us in this room don't understand all of this stuff. We don't have all the answers. Our faith isn't some super tight little box that we understand every single piece of. We have all the checks figured out. That's not, that's not our faith, all right? And I don't want a faith like that. I want a God of mystery. I want to believe in something that I don't fully understand. It shows to me that God is bigger than me, right? So if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have to read Revelation this afternoon. 
to be a Christian? You don't. It's all you have to do is know that I'm a sinner and that I need salvation. And Jesus Christ loved me. He gave his life for me. And he will rescue me from the punishment of my sin. If you need to pray about that, if you need to talk with someone about that, would you please step in the back? I've got some men back there. I've got, I've got ladies back there who would love to talk with you about that and pray with you about that. If you're not ready right now, this is too much. So listen, listen to what the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now. We could talk about this anytime, but right now is as good a time as ever to have a longer, elaborated conversation about this. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ and we're so preoccupied with the present that we're not even thinking about the eternal, we see all the bad things happening right now and it discourages us, just look ahead. Jesus is coming soon. One of the most obvious things throughout every single apostle in the New Testament was they are waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. You have to anticipate his return. That Jesus is our living hope. So we're going to sing the bridge, finish this song out, and I'm going to give you a chance to res respond. If you need to pray, just get on your knees and talk to God about what you're feeling right now. Get on your knees and talk to God. If you need to step in the back, step in the back and talk to someone. But this is your chance to respond to what we just heard in God's word. Let's continue to sing and worship. We're 